I'm Graham Lynch. This is Comms Day Live. Welcome to the show. We have a action-packed episode today. Uh, TIO, Judy Jones, is stepping down. We have a chat with her. We'll be hearing from Paul Fletcher about the controversial Julian Lisa private members bill that I spoke at length about in the last episode. And we also have an extended interview with Robert Kenny from Communications Chambers talking about some fascinating new internet usage research comparing various countries around the world. But first up, Rowan Pierce. Welcome to the show, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Um, let's take a little bit of a, a look at the week that was. Um, first up, the National Farmers Federation isn't very happy. Tell us why. Yeah, so it's quite interesting, actually. Um, a few of the submissions to the Regional Telecoms Review have started to trickle out. And so I, I did take a look at the National Farmers Federation one. And basically, obviously, they're a pretty important kind of um, stakeholder when it comes to regional comms. Um, so one of the kind of particular concerns that they've, they've said to the review that they have, they're quite worried about the Telstra decision to sell off a big stake in this towers business. I guess the context is that, you know, the NFS, has, uh, NFS I should say, um, has said that the mobile situation in regional Australia is still pretty iffy for a lot of its members. So what they really want is a, you know, public consultation process on the tower sales, um, you know, that side of the fact that there's been a fair bit of public money pumped into the regional mobile network. And they've also raised this idea that maybe regional communities could potentially purchase, lease or, or maintain the towers. Um, and I, I guess I, I kind of wonder whether this is a bit of an and the claim, I guess, to put a bit of pressure on Telstra and the government to shovel a bit more money towards mobile coverage in the regions. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that, um, you know, when when the when Telstra said that it had done the deal to sell off a, um, a chunk of the towers business, they actually said they're going to put seventy five million dollars from the part sales of the um, of the business into regional connectivity, which is really kind of you know paying back the funding that it received under the mobile black spot program in some senses. Um, so the, the NFF did say that Telstra had been consulting on the issue, but despite that, a lot of its members are kind of concerned. So I guess it's kind of like that that, that issue of like, how do you actually reassure people that this isn't going to mean that their mobile coverage is going to get worse? Um, so yeah, I guess I guess it'd be interesting to see how they play out because it's not like the, the NFF, they're not a, a nobody really. They do represent a kind of real constituency. And I guess it's like, how do you address those concerns with them? Yeah, and, and on the same theme... Um, some of the world's top satellite operators, who obviously serve some of the same geographies in Australia, are also concerned about uh, some of the directions we're heading with spectrum management. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so again, so this wasn't like another submission to the um, the Regional Telco Review. This is the Comms Alliance Satellite Services Working Group, and obviously the kind of the, the satellite operator members of Comms Alliance don't always see eye to eye with the the other telcos. Um, in the group on some of the issues, particularly around things like Spectrum. So I guess one of the interesting um, issues that the, the satellite group did raise was a proposal, um, concern around a proposal uh, by the ACMA for C-band earth station licensing. And the kind of proposal, was the, the, way, the way that the satellite operates say is they're getting treated like they're building mobile-based stations when they're really just wanting to put up a kind of um, an earth station. So the... The particular formula they're upset is about is um, an area-wide license tax for um, receiver stations, which is based on a kind of classic like dollar, hertz, a dollar megahertz pop price multiplied by bandwidth multiplied by the population of a particular area. So they're saying, well, we're being charged based on the population of a whole area 
when satellite operators actually only serve like a small proportion of the population. So they're kind of arguing it's an unfair burden um, and basically saying that, well, this is a threat to um, satellite operators. Um, I guess the kind of context is that they're saying, well, if you start charging us based on the population of a particular area where we do want an earth station, then we're going to have to relocate to, you know, more remote areas to continue operating and that's going to cost a lot of money. So a couple of related proposals I've raised is one, um, they've said the government should establish an earth station protection zone in regional South Australia. But the other thing is they've said that, you know, the government should potentially support funding um, the relocation of satellite operators into kind of protection zones. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us today, Rowan. Cheers, Graham. That's Rowan Pearce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Well, moving right along, we're continuing our look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, the Chief Editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Okay, um, first up, Tilstra had its big annual Vantage conference this week. I was going to say Vantage Day, but it actually goes for two days. Um, and uh, you were there uh, to, to hear uh, what they were talking about, and particularly in the area of 5G. Yeah, very much. Uh, They're in spirit uh, because uh, very much a virtual uh, uh, event still at the moment. But, uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting about uh, uh, Telstra's 5G standalone uh, network uh, plans. Uh, They're not messing about. Uh, So uh, Chana Senavaratna uh, outlined uh, what their plans are essentially for the standalone network, which uh, they've uh, obviously... Uh, rolled out now, uh, and what they're going to be doing for the next 12 to 18 months, which includes rolling out network slicing and the famous uh, terrible acronym, ultra-reliable low-latency communications, which, of (laughs) course, is (laughs) very good for uh, robotics and uh, industrial automation. And uh, they did make a a big announcement, essentially uh, working with Ericsson. Uh, As you remember, we broke the story about them uh, deploying the dual-mode core, uh, and uh, Microsoft as well, uh, that's on the Azure side, they're going to build Australia's first 5G-enabled edge compute solution for enterprises, and they're calling this branch offload. Uh, and it's it, it's an interesting um, uh, product uh, because it is literally using all of the elements of uh, what 5G standalone will actually uh, deliver. Initially, it's going to be uh, delivered as a managed service uh, via Telstra Purple, But uh, China did say that uh, third parties in the end will be able to actually uh, potentially build service and deliver on this as well, which makes it quite interesting. And to describe the service, essentially, it's going to deliver what they termed infrastructure-free branches. So if you can imagine, an enterprise will be able to offload their IT applications from the branch to Telstra's edge computing site at the edge of their network and then use those applications via 5G. And if you remember, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they launched a, uh, a 5G uh, service um, with a very good uh, guarantee as well uh, on the back of that, because uh, one of the key things that Chana kept emphasizing is how much resilience is going to be key to everything that they're doing uh, with rolling out their uh, 5G Edge product. And uh, so he touched a little bit about how that's going to work with the uh, various hyperscalers. Obviously, they've uh, done this work with Microsoft, and we've seen that Microsoft is really leading in some of their service provider-related products. Um, I think it was two weeks ago they launched their Operator Connect for connecting Teams to the PSTN. So 
Uh, although uh, Telstra is also working uh, quite closely with uh, AWS, uh, this this particular branch offload is uh, delivered via um, Azure uh, services. Now, uh, when uh, talking about that resiliency, Chana was uh, went through some of the stuff we've reported on before about how Telstra's built a very distributed network with these microzones, as they call them, and uh, that allows them to actually fail over fast. Uh, and uh, if you're running a low latency. Uh, application, you need that to be able to be picked up uh, correctly and intelligently. And this is all the smarts, the service orchestration that Telstra is putting underneath to deliver this particular service. And uh, so on the back of that, um, he did mention that they're going to potentially do this as a demand-driven rollout. Uh, initially, they were talking about potentially putting Edge in uh, 650 or so exchanges. But now uh, he is actually saying they've mapped out the coverage footprint, worked out access latencies, and correlated this with their exchange locations to work out potentially where they can put them but they're going to wait and uh, work with partners and also customer-driven de- uh, demand. Uh, he mentioned, uh, for example, uh, there's a couple of ag tech-related edge sites that they've already deployed in uh, Toowoomba. Now, uh, one thing he also mentioned uh, was uh, he confirmed a story we also talked about, about Ericsson's dual mode core, in that Telstra is very seriously looking at uh, developing an app marketplace and uh, Chana said that, you know, anybody using this app marketplace, you'd be able to expose 5G network services like quality of service uh, APIs and software developers uh, from, and he used uh, Telstra Purple, but it could be third parties as well, can build customized solutions up the stack, essentially, which is quite interesting. Uh, he did uh, touch upon the fact that uh, unlicensed spectrum is not something they're looking at for any of their enterprise services because, obviously, they have a fat wadge uh, of multiple low, mid, and high band spectrum. And he did suggest that MMWave is going to have a big role to play uh, in delivering fat pipes for some of these services. And the final thing he touched upon was interesting. I think they've got one eye on the regional telecoms review, and that is that uh, Telstra is going to expand its 4G footprint to 2.5 million square kilometres up from 2 million square kilometres to match its 3G footprint by mid-2024, and they're going to add 100,000 square kilometres of regional coverage by 2025 as well. Okay, good stuff. Now, moving on, um, the South Island of New Zealand seems to be set for a connectivity bonanza, courtesy of Data Grid. Tell us all about it. Very much so. And uh, this is all uh, uh, thanks to uh, serial entrepreneur Rami Galasso, the man who brought us the Hawaii cable. Uh, he has uh, quietly a little bit, uh, he hasn't made a, a big song and dance about it, but he's acquired a 43-hectare site near Invercargill on South Island where he plans to build a 40,000-square-metre hyperscale green data centre. Um, he essentially teamed up with and formed a company called DataGrid with Call Plus co-founder and former executive chairman Malcolm Dick uh, to pursue this uh, project, which is probably going to be north of 650 million Australian dollars um, uh, once uh, completed. He's managed to do a deal with uh, New Zealand's Meridian Energy, which is going to uh, uh, give the uh, operator 100 megawatts of uh, power from its Manapuri Hydra scheme. 
Uh, and uh, I think uh, from memory that used to uh, supply a uh, aluminium smelter there, so they have some spare capacity, so that's worked out quite well. Now, interestingly, uh, Remy is uh, very keen to talk up some of the cables that he wants to put in, and uh, they are looking at deploying two new subsea cables uh, connecting Invercargill to Coogee in Sydney and St Andrew Beach in Melbourne. And uh, essentially, by doing that, uh, Remy thinks that uh, that's going to give them access to 15 million people with a latency of under 25 milliseconds, uh, which, a- again, with the, the amount of uh, cable work that we're seeing, that's, that could prove quite interesting. And uh, we've already seen in the last uh, two weeks or so announcements from Azure, DCI data centers, and AWS uh, regarding New Zealand, what their plans are for uh, rolling out data center services there. So it's getting quite interesting. Uh, there's a lot of government interest in uh, spurring on the economy in uh, what they call Southland. And uh, so I think uh, Remy is going to really push this, and we know he's uh, been able to do it beforehand. Uh, so it's going to be a very interesting project. Uh, one of the things uh, he's also really keen to do is to try and uh, convince uh, uh, the cable coming from Chile, the uh, so-called Humboldt cable, uh, which is uh, going to be running from Valparaiso to uh, Auckland and then on to Sydney. Uh, Now, uh, Remy, of course, would love that dearly to come through uh, South Island as well. So I think uh, his plans are coming together. The key thing that he needs now uh, is an anchor tenant. Yeah, and fascinating stuff in terms of that sub-cable connectivity, um, you know, creating a new South Pacific route, potentially. Melbourne opening up for sub-cable connectivity for the first time. And, of course, we've got a lot of other plans for places like Perth and Darwin around the country. So good times indeed. Thank you so much, Simon. That's fine. Thanks again, Graham. Now, the telecommunications industry ombudsman, Judy Jones, announced that she will be quitting the job next March, um, by which time she will have served in the position for about six years or so. Um, she's, she's generally considered to have done a pretty good job. It's a, it's a difficult role to play as a, an intermediary between industry and consumers and judging industry harshly at times. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not an uncontroversial role. And she is considered to have done very well. Um, and she, she did draw praise from Communications Alliance CEO John Stanton and the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network CEO Teresa Corbin this week. So to get praise from both both quarters suggests that you're doing something right. Anyway, I spoke to Judy and I asked her first up um, why the decision to leave now. It's mainly around family and the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, my obviously, I'm from New Zealand. Um, my mother's 95. My daughter's having her first baby at Christmas, and I can't reliably get back there. So that's pulling me home. Um, and then when I look at the the state the TIO's in, I think it's in pretty good state compared to when I arrived, and it's okay. And okay, I mean, it'll never be the perfect time to leave uh, and I you know there's always more to do uh, but I feel okay about leaving it I feel like I've got a good strong leadership team 
um, and it's okay to move on and let someone else pick it up and run with it, really. So that kind of sums up the, the, the two factors. So one, the pull of moving home uh, and spending time with family, and, and two, I don't feel like it's not like we're in the middle of part A. <laughs> Um, and I, I feel that I've made a really good contribution. You've given notice, I understand, and you won't be leaving until next year. Is that right? March 2022. Yeah. March, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what, I, I guess I'd like to ask, first of all, what, what do you consider to be your greatest achievements at the TIO in your time there? Uh, when I came, um, I was expecting to be uh, running an office that was downsizing. So there'd already been three major downsizes. Complaints were falling. I think December 2015, when I had accepted the role, was the lowest quarter kind of for years and years and years. Um, and so I thought that was going to be the pattern. Um, so the challenge was maintaining good culture while downsizing an organisation and, and keeping it be um, right-sized for the work that we had to do. Uh, that's what I thought I was coming to. Um, yeah. And in fact, what I came to was the MBN um, and 40, 41% increase in that first year. So I, I think my greatest, um, one of my great, one of the things I'm proud of is that we actually managed that. That uh, was a challenging time because we've been so burnt by downsizing that we were nervous about employing staff. Um for long term, because we didn't know what it was going to be. Was it was it uptick? Was it you know a blip? Well, we didn't really know what it was. Um, so we responded to that. I think the other um, I've built a positive internal culture, so that what we have is people who are committed. They know what they need to do. Um, they're engaged and they're deliberate. Um, and that means it's made made it easier to do all the other things we've done, like improve our data uh, so that was one of the learnings from that early period was um, to get on top of that data I think we were behind the eight ball with that um, certainly my appearance at the joint um, uh, committee um, where there were questions about our data they were right you know we weren't we weren't telling the story the way an ombudsman should be telling the story so fixing that responding to the independent review um, putting more emphasis better quality systemic identification and work and I think also rebuilding um, building and rebuilding the relationships with stakeholders uh, so I think we have positive oh, I just off the phone with John Stanton um, uh, and he talked about you know it's been great because I've been willing to have frank conversations so I think that kind of credibility and trust yeah, now, you just mentioned Consumer Safeguards Part A, and of course there was a Part B and a Part C. <laughs> We're still, still going, you know, it's, a, it's been yeah. a multi-year yeah. process. Um, yeah. But of course, back at the start of that, there was a genuine existential threat to the TIO, um, you know, and, and a desire, it seems, at departmental level to reboot the whole thing and start again. So looking back on that, it's a couple of years ago now, how do you feel about that whole period and, and what did you have to do to get through it and to justify the TIO's existence as it was? It was pretty, it was pretty horrible. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was galvanizing to action. So I, I think 
what we did, and you know, if you go back and read the submission, was we just reported on what what our contribution is and how it all fitted in the 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 appropriate place in the regulatory framework. So yes, we're part of the consumer protection framework, um, but we're not a consumer advocacy body and we're not a regulator. So that we have the right place, but it's not in either of those two spots. And I, you know, the the support we had from both Consolidates and ACAN was really. It felt like if we had those two bodies on board, then we could simply tell our story um, and and hope that, you know, the 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 right side would land. Um, so working with stakeholders, working with the department, explaining, re-explaining our role, all those sorts of things was um, what we do. And of course, we had our employees who were um, discombobulated by that. They were feeling like their jobs were at risk. So just messaging to them, we've got to just keep doing what we do best. That's that's the best thing you can do to support us as we fight this existential crisis, really. Now, moving on to our future interview of the week, Robert Kenny from Communications Chambers in the United Kingdom. Now, we see lots of research comparing countries when it comes to peak internet speeds. In fact, ad nauseum, it seems to me, and often has about as much value as using the results from a Formula One race to measure commuter patterns. We don't see research comparing the actual usage of countries, which to me... Uh, seems like a much more fascinating topic to explore. Now, Rob Kenny has done something about that. Welcome to the show. I must admit, I don't think I've seen research such as this before. As far as I know, at least in the public domain, and yeah. and, and your, your point is absolutely right, which is there is so much focus on these input measures, you know, how much bandwidth, even how much penetration, what speeds people are taking and so on. And that's, we don't have the internet to admire copper or glass fiber or coax coming into our house. We have the internet to go off and do wonderful things, you know, to do video conferences or look at uh, Twitter or stream um, Korean dramas, whatever it may be. And for me, it is much more interesting to look at measures of usage. Now, traffic is, is, uh, in a, it is a perhaps flawed measure of usage in some ways, but it is a measure of what's actually happening with the infrastructure, and that is much more important than what infrastructure is available, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I, let's go through some of the findings of your analysis. Mm. The, the one yeah. that um, really jumped out at me was the disparity in data usage between particular countries that you found a very interesting linguistic commonality between the leaders. So t- tell me about you, your yeah. findings there. Exactly. So if you if you look at the top of the pack, and I should just quickly say the pack here is the set of countries I could find where the regulators published usage data. And by usage data here, we're talking about uh, gigabytes of traffic per month. So how many bits are actually traveling up or down the pipes to the home? And so this is not it's not a kind of necessarily a representative sample. Uh, you know, countries you'd be very interested in, like China, for instance, are not in there because they don't publish this data as best I can tell. But of the 19 countries we can find data for, absolutely right up at the top of the pack uh, are the English-speaking countries. So the top five go UK, US, New Zealand, then we have Iceland, but not Aussie, and Australia. 
Uh, and the traffic dis- differences between those and some of the ones at the bottom of the pack are quite dramatic. So Austria, for instance, you know, perfectly developed economy, sophisticated, so on, has about a quarter of the traffic of the UK. So there's a lot going on that drives traffic, but it does feel like uh, language is an important uh, element that uh, we end up with all those uh, English-speaking countries at the top. Uh, and it feels, in a sense, natural in that... Uh, what we do much of the time on the internet is consume content, and there's just a lot of English language content out there. And you can think of Netflix, for instance. Netflix arrives in a country, and over time it will build uh, a local inventory of content, but it starts with a massive amount of English language content. So uh, in countries where folks speak English, that makes Netflix extremely uh, attractive. But it's not just video. You can see the same thing in computer games, for instance. So Steam, which distributes computer games, virtually all of their games are available in English language. The next most popular language is um, German, where about a quarter of the games have a German version. So if you happen to speak, I don't know, Portuguese or something, there's just a lot less available for you. So the uh, English-speaking languages have a kind of built-in advantage when it comes to what content is out there for them. And perhaps unsurprisingly, that appears to be leading to uh, heavier use in those countries. Interesting. I guess we chose our ancestors wisely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well done. Actually. In that case. Um, so moving on, one, one, another interesting finding is that you found no correlation at all with usage and the underlying technology platform. And we've, we've always been told over the years that Fiverr to the premises was a good thing because it would lead to a lot of increased usage. But you, you're not finding that in the actual data. Uh, yes. So if you look at the graph of um, uh, Fiverr to the premise um, availability, or we'll share a broadband versus usage. It's just a cloud of points. There's no obvious pattern at all. A couple of quick health warnings on that, though. This is not a multivariate analysis where we a whole bunch of stuff into complex regression. Maybe if you'd done that, you'd find Fiverr to make a contribution. But it's certainly in the kind of the, the headlines. It's not obvious at all. And, and to give two specific examples, the UK, which has been out of this group, great Fiverr laggard, uh, and really only got going on Fiverr deployment within the last 12 months, has the highest traffic per line in the world, at least as of um, 2020. Um, so that's mostly over fibre to the cabinet. Uh, fibre to the cabinet, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. gotcha. Exactly yeah. so. Um, Japan, by contrast, which has had a lot of fibre for a long time and, and for, for many years was sort of called out as the fibre leader we were supposed to emulate, uh, has one of the lowest uh, levels of traffic per world. Now, Obviously, I'm not saying that fibre to the premise causes lower traffic. Of course not. Um, it's just that other things seem to be much more important for levels of usage than fibre, uh, such as English languages we've just been talking about. Uh, and I think what that says is uh, that for the great majority of what people are doing on the Internet, non-fibre to the premise, fibre to the cabinet or coax, uh, is, is good enough. You know, it doesn't act as a constraint on their usage. Um, the other thing I should say, though, again, just uh, to be careful, that doesn't mean Fiverr's premise has no benefit. So imagine you're downloading a console game and on uh, Fiverr to the premise, you've got a gigabit line, maybe it takes you half an hour and that's fantastic. And if you're doing it on Fiverr to the cabinet, it's going to take you three hours, whatever it may be. 
Now, in traffic terms, those two look identical. Right? It doesn't it doesn't change your total usage. But clearly, as a consumer, you are happier with that higher speed in that specific circumstance. So I want to be careful not to say five with Prem has has no benefit, but it doesn't seem to be changing the um, uh, total amount of traffic that's traveling over the lines. Yeah, or, or influence usage in a uniform direction. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's worth saying on that as well. I mean, traffic, as I said earlier, it is a... It is a very interesting measure, but it is partial. And some of the things that are perhaps most valuable about the internet, um, and I say in the lockdown, the ability to, to have e-commerce and get stuff delivered to your home, that is a very valuable application. It's not very big in traffic terms. Um, and that's the other thing worth bearing in mind here is that uh, what generates big traffic is not necessarily what's most valuable in the usage. And, and it's actually some of the low bandwidth applications that, frankly, would conceivably work on dial-up uh, are some of the most valuable, like home shopping or, or kind of being able to get e-health information, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, let's face it, a text message telling you that you've won the lottery has much more value to you than a trashy two-hour HD movie from Hollywood that you forget the moment it's finished. So, yeah, compar- comparing yeah the, the value of something to data size is a pretty perilous uh, exercise. That's right. The, the um, value per bit varies massively, yes. Yes. Now, on that, we've, we've obviously um, just had you know, well over a year of pandemic affecting mm-hmm. usage or influence usage around the world. What are you seeing there in, in, in terms of the data? Yeah, exactly. So uh, there's less data on this just because um, the underlying data for this analysis comes from national regulatory authorities. Some of them um, publish more quickly than others. Some of them publish more uh, frequently than others. And obviously, to look at the impact of the pandemic, you need both recent and, and relatively kind of fine-grained data. So we have a smaller set. But what it uh, seems to suggest is, of course, as everybody knows, the pandemic led to a great surge of usage um, uh, as we were all at home trying to kill time or trying to get our work done. But the lingering effect of that seems to be quite different by market. And so when we looked at some of the high use markets, so as I've mentioned, uh, US, uh, New Zealand, uh, Hong Kong, actually relatively high use, you can see the spike in usage from uh, the lockdowns. But what we did is try to figure out whether there had been lasting effects. And so we we took the um, usage growth pre-pandemic, so up to the end of 2019, and we projected forward, you know, imagining we didn't know what it had subsequently. We projected forward and we said, OK, so what's actual usage done relative to that projection, what you would have expected? And you see the pandemic spikes, the lockdown spikes. But actually now, as lockdowns have eased in lot of these countries, you see usage falling back to the projection line or even below it. So even though it's higher than it was in 2019, it's not, you know, it's not a lot higher. It's it's only the kind of in line with the historic growth, which suggests that in those markets, as if you like, human behaviour, you know, are they locked down and so on, has returned to normal. So their internet usage has reverted to a more normal uh, pattern. But that's not true for some of the countries that were lower used to begin with. So places like Croatia, uh, Portugal, Ireland, actually, even though it was English speaking, was lower usage. When you do the same analysis for them, you see that they are still noticeably above the past trend line. Um, and that suggests that uh, there has been a, who knows whether it's permanent, but at least a much more lasting impact of the pandemic. So that much is clear in the data. 
we now move to speculation about why that is. And my, my hypothesis is that in developed markets that, for instance, already had uh, high adoption of Netflix, say, lockdown begins, people are at home all day, so they're watching Netflix during the day and their traffic spikes back up. Once they're going uh, back into the workplace, they're no longer watching Netflix during the day. Uh, they may be in the evening, but they were before. You don't see any lingering effect. In countries that were lower usage, when they started lockdown, the reaction was, I'll watch it, was not, I'll watch a bit more Netflix, because they didn't have Netflix. Their reaction was, huh, I better get a Netflix subscription. Uh, and so they watched uh, Netflix during the day and the evening. Now they're going back to work, but they've been sort of boosted up into a higher usage level because they're retaining Netflix, having tried it, discovered it, they've kept it. I'm obviously using Netflix as an example here, thousands of applications um, uh, where the same logic would apply. So I think it's been, a, if you like, a little bit of an equaliser in sort of bringing different countries closer together, albeit that the big gaps remain. Okay, interesting. Now, um, my, my, my final question, um, many of us in Australia know you best from the work that you did back in 2014 mm-hmm. um, in terms of analysis of the, the bandwidth market, which supported okay. the business case for mm-hmm. the NBN here. Um, some, of the, some of your work was very controversial at the time because you, mm-hmm. you of course, suggested that people had perhaps overestimated the, the bandwidth needs of various applications. Mm-hmm. Now, now we're seven, eight years on. Uh, do you feel your analysis has, has uh, stood the test of time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, back back then, people were saying, oh, you've taken no account of future applications that are going to need enormous bandwidth. Well, here we are, the better part of a, a decade later, and where are all those applications? You know, there's there's nothing going on out there that was not in that original model. So that's that's the first thing to say, you know. Yeah, we have you know, 4K stream TV is a bit more mainstream than it was back then, but that was something we factored into the model. Um, so uh, I feel good about it in that sense. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about how much video compression would matter. Video compression matters because uh, in, in our original forecast, because it reduces the bandwidth you need for a given video quality and video compression gets better and better over time. And there was some discussion about would that... Um, uh, would that suppress, uh, would that stop, you know, would the improvements in video compression stop? Well, absolutely, they haven't. They very much carried on. So from a sort of technical modelling sense, uh, I feel good about it. But also I feel good about it from the point of view of, of actual usage in the countries without fabulous fibre, uh, fibreless premise. So we've just talked about how high traffic is in places like the UK and Australia, both countries that uh, have a substantial amount of fibre to the cabinet in their mix. Uh, And uh, clearly it hasn't been a material constraint on usage because those countries have ended up at the uh, top of the rankings. Um, If we'd, uh, plus also, as we've just talked about, the fibre to the premise uh, availability makes no evident difference to traffic. So these countries that uh, didn't throw a lot of money at fibre uh, to the premise could have wasted a lot if they had. Now, I'm not sure we would have any difference in the actual usage, the actual benefits to consumers and citizens if that money had been spent. So uh, I feel good about the forecast. Indeed, we've uh, reworked them, not uh, 
last year. Uh, and the numbers that, if you like, the kind of the now casting numbers, the numbers we get looking at the bandwidth you need today, given the usage of the various different applications uh, and the bandwidth they require, that now cast is within a few megabits per second of the forecast we did back when. Uh, so, yeah, I feel pretty good about that forecast is the honest answer. Okay, very interesting stuff. Thanks so much again. I hope to talk to you again soon. All right, take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, if you want to read uh, Robert's report, it's available at the Communication Chamber's website, uh, comcham.com. That's double M. You can Google it if that wasn't clear. It's also on uh, Robert's LinkedIn page, um, Robert Kenny. Again, search on Robert Kenny Communications Chambers, and you'll be able to read my report on it in the um, 11th of October issue of Comms Day. Now, finally, you may recall if you heard last week's episode that I uh, went on a bit of an extended spiel about the private members bill from Liberal backbencher MP Julian Lisa. Um, As I said last week, he's long campaigned for better telecommunication services, and he has a new bill that would impose all sorts of sweeping and probably counterproductive regulatory obligations on the telco sector. Um, Telcos would be liable for fines of up to $222 million. Um, Should death result from a loss of a mobile signal, there'll be 12-hour battery backup requirements, a customer service guarantee, which would mandate a maximum of five minutes on hold (laughs) if you call call a call center, Um, a a replacement of the TIO with an ombudsman appointed directly by the minister, and, and all sorts of personal accountability requirements on telco executives which could result in fines on individuals of up to 11 million dollars in the industry the thing has a whole lot of potentially negative effects anyway paul fletcher the communications minister the one who actually does make the policy in this area um appeared before the national press club this week to talk about um online regulation completely different topic but in the q a he was asked what he thought about the julian lisa bill And this is what he said. Well, the first thing I'd say is that parliamentary colleagues, backbench colleagues in the Liberal and National parties are absolutely entitled to bring forward private members' bills as they're absolutely entitled to speak out on any issue. Julian's been a passionate advocate on the question of telecommunication services, particularly in so-called peri-urban areas. Uh, That's to say areas like his electorate of Barara, which run from uh, built-up urban areas into extensive bushland. And Julian and his electorate has a lot of bushland through areas like, you know, Dundas and... um, I'm sorry, not Dundas, but uh, Canoe Lands and Dural and uh, places like that. So um, he's been very passionate on this issue, um, been essentially a key co-architect of something that we committed to a few months ago, which is a funding scheme for extra mobile coverage in peri-urban areas, PUMP, the peri-urban mobile program. Uh, And we'll be releasing the guidelines on that shortly. We'll be calling for applications, and that will be a tangible opportunity to get additional mobile coverage into peri-urban areas 
of our big cities, including within Julian's electorate. Uh, look, in terms of the other issues that Julian's raised, we've had a number of discussions about them. I'm sure we'll continue to have discussions. Uh, in some areas, uh, for example, the uh, measures he's proposed in relation to Telstra not being able to own the USO, we already have measures on the books in the National Broadband Network Company Act that have the same effect, that effectively say a retail telco may not own NBN. But look, I welcome Julian's uh, passion and commitment on this issue. Uh, I've engaged with him closely on it and I will continue to do so. Okay, well, on that note, that's Comms Day Live for this week. We'll see you next time.